Welcome to West Quasset Chapel's podcast. For more information, visit us online at westquassettchapel.com. Good morning. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13 in the New Testament, and it is page 7, or excuse me, 804 in our church Bibles. 804 in the church Bibles, Romans 13. We're finishing up now. We've been working through Romans 13 and for a few weeks, and we've been working through Romans verse by verse for quite a while now. Believe it or not, this is the 80th sermon from Romans. I just keep track of things, and that's one of the things I keep track of. So there we are, Romans 13, and we're going to begin reading in verse 11. And do this, it's all that we've walked through before, and do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. All right, amen. That's the word of God. Let's, let's pray. Bow with me, please. Just a simple prayer. Jesus said, if, if I am weak, if we are weak, we should come to him. No one else can be our strength. We should come to him. So we do come now in neediness and humility with expectation. Our concern is your glory and the good of everyone who listens. Therefore, frankly, for the good of the world. And so for that to take place, for us to understand, for me to speak, we are at your disposal and we, God, are gladly, very gladly dependent on you. And uh, we, we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Now, I think it's fair to say that we all live our lives in light of something, that there is some grand thing that frames the totality of our existence most of the time. So it's the thing that wakes us up in the morning, it puts our feet in our shoes, it keeps our hands to the plow, it calls for the best of our minds and asks for some kind of, of deep emotional commitment. And in this section here, Paul says, so, so God says that, that the grand thing that frames the totality of our existence as a Christian within the framework of our social responsibility, that's the context here, right? Within the framework of loving each other and loving our enemies and, and obedient to the state, 
and loving our neighbor. The grand thing that we are to live in the light of is the return of our Savior and our King and our friend, Jesus Christ. If your Bible's open, verse 11, and do this, okay, all those social responsibilities, do this understanding the time. The, all, the hour has already come from you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is near now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So, so here it is. Let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. And you see that truth, the return of Jesus Christ and the expectation is the subtext of everything I'm going to say this morning. And if you know your Bibles, that should not surprise you at all. It seems like every apostle who wrote something in the New Testament wrote that. So, so this is actually Jesus in Mark's gospel. Therefore, keep watch, because you don't know when the master of the house will return, whether at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning. Otherwise, he may arrive without notice, and here it is, and find you sleeping. Luke's gospel, Jesus, do not let him find you sleeping. Your redemption is drawing near. Peter, 2 Peter 3.11, he's speaking about the end of time. What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you work, look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. And then in verse 14, it says, so, so then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless and blameless and at peace with him. And, and John 1 John 2, verse 18, dear children, this is the last hour. And then verse 28, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. So, so that's Christian. So in essence, everything that we're told to do and be here as Christians ought to be influenced by the reality of the fact that Jesus died, that he, he got up from the dead, he is alive, and he will return. And therefore, nothing that we do in exactly the way that we're called to do it here in this section is untied to that beautiful fact. And so, it is a beautiful fact. Because by saying that Jesus Christ is returning as a Christian, I'm not trying to frighten anyone. Do you understand that? I mean, the fact that Jesus Christ is going to return is, is really beautiful news. That there's coming a day when he returns that will never know a sunset. And therefore, all the ugly stuff that we deal with inside of us, in here as the battle is always on, all the stuff that's going out there, it's going to be gone one day. There's coming a day when you and I will never be able to hurt anyone again. And there's coming a day when we'll never have to tell God, I'm sorry for that, for maybe the 1,500th time. And so Paul says, paraphrase, by golly, live for that day live for that day. That's the framework. I, I hope it helps you because it helps me. And one of the reasons why 
I think it helps me is because the certainty of death is often underneath a person's indifference to some parts of life. Let me say that again. The certainty of the reality of death is sometimes uh, the reaction of a person's indifference to some parts of life. So, so there's a gentleman named Graham Greene. He's an author. He wrote the book, The Heart of the Matter. And he's describing one of the characters. He said that he had the dim idea that perhaps if one delayed long enough, things were taken out of one's hands altogether by death. Do you know what you're saying? A person may think, okay, these decisions that I don't want to make, I'm not going to make, and I'm just going to let time pass, and then I'll die, and I won't have to decide. And so all the strenuous stuff that comes with making a decision, I can just avoid it because of death, and I'll never get to see the fallout of my indifference and the fallout of my lack of being able to make a decision. That should not be us as Christians. We, we see pretty clearly this morning that we're called to a different kind of life, a life in which we act and obligate ourselves, and we act in a certain way, and we obligate ourselves in a certain way because, as Paul says here, living in the re- reality of the return of Jesus Christ. A, a life, now think of it, now think hard on this, a life that we live as Christians that is framed with the reality that Jesus Christ is going to return. And again, that's not meant to scare you. If you're a Christian, that should thrill you. So this is a life beyond our flesh, verse 14. It's a life beyond indifference. A life that just, you know, is not trying to just wait things out. It's a life of love, really, if you think about it. And that takes us to our first point, number one, a change in time. That's verse 11, isn't it? Do this. Okay, again, do what? Well, if you look at your Bible, all of 13, part of 12, he's talking about loving our enemies. That's the latter part of 12. Do this. Obey the government. The first seven verses, do that. Love your neighbor. Do that. It's a debt that you will continually pay. Do that. Understand that. So if you want to know, again, you want to know how to love your enemies, verses 17 to 21 of chapter 12, your relationship to the state, verses 1 through, through 7, your relationship to the neighbor and to the law, verses 8 through 10 of chapter 13. And so Paul's been saying that our duty to love is a, is, is a constant obligation. We're always indebted to it. We'll never be able to pay up, not in this flesh, and that's okay. Love is a good thing. That kind of payment is the kind of payment people need. Okay, so then do this, understanding the present time. Now, do you see that word time there? It's keros, and it means at just the right time or the opportune time. So, Paul is saying that the times that we have, there's some kind of special significance in them. Okay, so that, in other words, this is the best time, right now is the best time to live out the latter part of chapter 12 and all of chapter 13. That's good form. Okay, so then you ask yourself, what time is it? <laughs> you know, this, what time is it? <laughs> okay. Was there something going on in the church? Maybe. In Rome? Maybe. Or literally, you know, know what time it is? Maybe. Okay, but look at verse 11. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. So what Paul does is he contrasts the now that we live in with the then that is coming. The now of life on planet Earth 
and the then of life and the new heaven and earth. So we, in our old life, we were asleep. But now you need to wake up because in your new life, you're awake. Your salvation, that's, that is when every gospel promise will be fulfilled. That's the word that Paul, it's a comprehensive use of salvation. That day is coming. When everything that was promised will come to its fruition, but namely like the glorification of your body. And all Paul is saying is like, you're on the clock as a Christian. Therefore, please look at verse 12. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. You see, so Paul presents a clear contrast between the fading night and the, the dawning of a new day. So you have to ask yourself the question, okay, what has happened that the, day, the night all of a sudden became the day for the Christian. Well, it's simple. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is going to return, it means that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. So his resurrection, now, now stay with me because there's an immense payoff here. His resurrection guarantees every person in this room and every Christian around the world that there is a better day coming. It guarantees the glorification of your bodies. In other words, those guarantees are not on you and I, but they're on Christ. So that when Christians talk about dead people rising, we mean that. We mean that. We celebrate. In a few weeks, we're going to celebrate the resurrection. Because we, we think that the last final general resurrection already began the moment that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And so when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, when he was, came out of that tomb, in a sense... Paul's like, he's the first fruits. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, the clock started ticking. We, we began living in the last days until we see him as he is. So what you should say to yourself is, okay, that makes sense because everything in the Christian life begins with Jesus Christ. And so the fact that we're going to be raised from the dead, if we die, we're going to be raised from the dead, it begins with the reality that Jesus was raised from the dead. But right now, Paul is showing us that we live between the times. And there's a very real tension. Now, don't lie to yourself. If, the, if you don't feel the tension of living in the old life and the new life, the, the old age and the new age, then just check yourself. We are citizens right now of two worlds. You should know that. You should feel that. There are some days when we make decisions all in light of eternity. Those are beautiful, wonderful days. There are some days when all our decisions are made based only on the now, their time decisions. Some of those things are beautiful. Some of them are not. And it's a sore fight to the end. So we're citizens of this passing world, but we're also citizens of the new heaven and the new earth, the, the kingdom of God. And we live in the tension, the strain, the pressures of this old world. And Paul says, okay, do that with the return of Christ in view, right? Because ever since Father Adam fell asleep in his sin, he returned to dust, death has been part of life. But now Jesus Christ has died on the cross. He was buried in the tomb. He's been raised to newness of life. And that reality and the conviction of it is brought to bear on the way we live. Now ask yourself, as you think about holiness and sanctification, is that, is that what you draw your strength from? We've been moved from being in a time of night and now and being asleep to a time of day and being awake. 
And so now we live for a new reason. We live in the hope of the return of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's simply saying something like, if you ask the question, what should the result of this changed time be? The fact that Jesus is alive, and when Jesus rose from the dead, the clock, if you would, changed. He simply says, and this is our second point, he says that since there's been a change in time, there ought to be a change in behavior, okay? A change in time means, as Paul writes here, there ought to be a change in behavior. Verse 11b, the hour, the exact time has come from you to wake up from your slumber, put on Christ because his coming is closer. All right, so before we get to the next point, you, you know the thing about sleeping is, right? You, you don't know you're asleep until what? You've, you've been awakened. That's what Paul is alluding to. Okay, a change in time. Second, a change in behavior. Now, this is what you need to do. You need to ask yourself, of all the reasons, of all the reasons for motivation to live the kind of life that Paul is explaining here to excite us to live a holy life in the context of our social services, right? Our social services to our fellow men and fellow women. Of all the different reasons Paul could have said, to inspire us to live well, what does he say? Jesus is going to return. The day is really close. It's nearer now than ever before. Verse 12, you see it there, suit up, put on the armor. Verse 14, put on Christ and live with his return in view. Okay, Jesus is going to return. Jesus is your friend, Christian. He loves you. He died for you. He took God's wrath for you. He's been taking care of you and keeping watch over you every day. Don't you want to see him soon? And when you see him soon, don't you want him to find you living well? Behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. And he's been watching you, and he's been watching me carefully, graciously, since we became a we. Okay, so ask yourself this question. When you are self-motivating, this is to you personally, when you are self-motivating to live a holy life, is, is his return the reason why? So I made a list of other reasons why. Here's some reasons why that we could live a holy life. I mean, it, because do you live a holy life because you know that you're afraid that something bad will happen to you if you're not good? Or how about this one? If you're afraid that somehow well, God will, you know, if, you, if you're going to keep being bad, if you do some bad thing, he's going to turn off the spout where all his blessings come out, and therefore you're going to be good. Or is it you, you know you're ashamed of what your current behavior is, and so you need to stop. You know you need to stop because it's going to kill your family, and it's going to kill your marriage, and your life is going to come to ruins. Or, or what if someone found out? Is that the reason why we would live a holy life? Or you just can't stand it. You know, it wounds your pride when you, when you don't always come out as you know, the hero of the story. And sometimes in your battle with sin, sin kicks your bottom, and you don't like it. You don't like to lose because you're an achiever, right? You're not a believer. 
All right. Now, now some of those things are good motivation. Some of them are not. But I can tell you this with all the love in my heart and on the authority of God's word, those are not the highest motivations. Now, I want you to think with me what Paul does here to get us to live well. He's given basic Christian theological truth. Basic Christian theological truth. Christ died and he rose. And because he rose he's gonna, and returned, he's going to return. Turn that way, he's going to return this way. Do, do you ever hear those questions? I just read this question, you know, about a person was trying to help me live a holy life. It wasn't help me personally, but he was writing it. And he said, you know, would you be embarrassed to watch what you're watching on television with Jesus Christ? And then if you are, then don't watch it. Well, you know, okay. But, you know, Jesus is like, he's a genius, incomprehensible, infinite genius. So, you know, yeah, I guess I would watch anything. He'd be like, you know, I know what's going to happen. <laughs> you know, this is like a two-year-old stuff to me. <laughs> you know, Joni's not going to marry Marshall. You know that, don't you? <laughs> you know, the, the point is, I get what they're trying to do, but the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible calls for the highest good. Your friend, your savior, your king, he's coming back for you. He's not sad about it. He's not afraid. You don't be sad and you don't be afraid. Just live well. Live well. Paul says, live in light of the return of Christ. That is theology. He did die. He was buried. He was raised. He did ascend to the right hand of the Father. He will return. And that is the muscle that motivates the Christian to live a holy life. Live well for him. Now, I'm just going to set aside parents. Oh. Will you, will you please think about, if you're not already doing that with your kids, you want to raise a good child, Book of Romans is a great book, how-to book. This is the truth. When we were raising our kids and we stumble into this, so I don't want you to think, oh, we knew this. We just stumbled. Oh, we did. We taught them a lot of theology. And we had very few do's and don'ts. Or even like in a marriage, you know, if you want to have a supercalifragilisticexpialidocious marriage, which sounds exciting, <laughs> study the book of Romans together. Now, I might be the only person, in, you know, for right now that has ever said that. I, d I doubt it, but <laughs> you want to live well, you want to live in the light, live in light of the return of Jesus Christ. Because at that point, it becomes personal, doesn't it? It's not just some ethic. It's for a person. We tend to do our best living when we live for someone else and not for ourselves. We do our highest living when we live for our master. Verse 12, for this reason, right? Put aside, put on. It was a great reading, by the way, that we read this morning. Put, us, put aside the deeds of darkness. You can do that, you know, and put on the armor of light. It's a great use of metaphor. Certain actions are more typical of the night. We know that. They're high. We don't want anyone to see. Little kids, they go in the room. They go in the closet when they've taken a cookie. We understand that. Other actions are done in the light. So Paul writes, verse 13, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in, and here's the deeds of darkness, uh, orgies, some of your translations, carousing, drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. That's a pretty glaring list. 
It's a stark list. It's a list of darkness, and it's a list of life apart from Christ. So we just have to walk through them. And I don't enjoy doing this, but we have to do it. These are the deeds of darkness. Okay, the first thing that Paul says is orgies. Now, the word there is komosi. It was used for like a military or athletic victory celebration. So when the word was first used, it was a good thing. Someone would win a battle. Someone would win in a competition. Everything was great. Yay. But in time, it began to take on darker connotations. So the people were celebrating. They got a little drunk. They got a little wild. They got immoral. Wild parties is the word indicates, and fights broke out, and chest-thumping behavior, and riots. And apparently, it was so common in the first century that Paul had to say, don't. That's a deed of darkness. Second one, your Bible's open, drunkenness. This is intentional and habitual intoxication. There's a poem from a guy named Charles Baudelaire. 19th century. You have to be always drunk. That's all there is to it. It's the only way. So as not to feel the horrible burden of time that breaks your back and bends you to earth, you have to be continually drunk. Paul's like, no, you don't. Drunkenness is, a, is, is, is life in darkness. Verse 14 Drunkenness is a deed of darkness that, you see it there, it just simply feeds your flesh. So it's selfish in nature, and you're not loving your neighbor in your drunkenness. Sexual immorality. Now, it's interesting that Paul uses a different word. The word that he most often uses is the word that we're kind of familiar with, pornea. Here, it's the word koiti. It's significant. Because, again, it was a word that had a good meaning. It was just basically refers to your bed or your bedroom. But in time, it got dirtied up, and it came to have the condemnation of what we understand today, sleeping with someone, sleeping with someone other than your spouse. So that is darkness that dishonors your marriage bed. And it actually made me think of a song. I have no idea how I remembered this song but I, I, think, I think the group is Alabama, but there's a line, a few lines in the song. Work took me away from home late at night, and I wasn't there when she turned out the lights. Then both of us got lonely, and I gave in to lust, and she just couldn't live with a man she couldn't trust. And then the refrain, now she's a lady down on love. Sexual immorality is a deed of darkness. Debauchery. Okay, this, this is basically excessive, absent of any restrained behavior. This is living uninhibited, no restraints. So it's the treatment of your body, strong drink, bad sex, all restraints gone. A deed of darkness. Dissension. This is interesting, right? This is a person who's just persistent and always wanting strife. This is a person who's always looking for the fight, a bickerer, petty disagreements. This is the, the spirit of antagonistic competition. 
right? There has to be a winner. There has to be a loser in every conversation. And so they have to have their own way. And it doesn't matter the cost. And it doesn't matter who gets harmed. It produces a deep desire to prevail over others, to get the high seat, you know, to be the high person in the room, to be, if you would, prominent and dominant and accusative in order to be recognized, not in Christ, but in your own personal righteousness and awesomeness. So in a lot of ways, it's very self-indulgent. It has no place in the church of Jesus Christ, and it is a deed of darkness, jealousy. Jealousy, much like strife, is a person who has this intense zeal, but their zeal is simply for themselves. And because it's for themselves, they, they cause division and they cause confusion. It can ruin a lot of good things. Can't jealousy? It's terrible. Paul says this is a deed of darkness. It might surprise you. It might not surprise you. But there's a lot of mornings when I have to ask God to not let me be jealous today. Because we're told here to put them aside. So you hear all those things. No wonder verse 12 says, put on the armor, the armor of light. And verse 13, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that tells me? It tells me that these dark sins can be easily committed. How easy? Well, you need armor. You need to be clothed, verse 14, with the eternal one. So as you were listening to the list, I hope you weren't thinking, well, you know, I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to worry about that sin or that sin or those sins. I hope you weren't doing that. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthian church? If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And don't you want to know that part of the the light is that there can be no deed of darkness that can disqualify you from being a Christian? Isn't that part of the light? And you see, Paul knows that we still belong to the, the, the dying age where the natural appetites, verse 14 again, are still around and they they just cry out to be fed. They cry out to be fed. So it's hard to live right socially. We should recognize that. There's There's our flesh and the powers of darkness are a force to be reckoned with. And, you know, there's been times in the church age, not this church age, but the church age globally, where people had the holiness teachings. Remember the holiness teachings? But if you just had enough faith, and if you just had enough spirit, you know, Romans 6, 6, then you know your old nature will always be crucified, and you'll be dead to sin, and and sin will be dead to you, and good golly, Miss Molly, no more battle. Woo! It's going to be great. How could any honest person be taken in by that, not only in light of the teaching that we have here, but Paul says about himself in chapter 7. My flesh is not dead. If your flesh flesh is dead, then you are a fortunate one. But just be honest. We will always need the direction of verses 13 and 14. Our, Our flesh, do you remember the game Hungry Hippo? You grab the handle, and Hippo's always trying to do the thing. That's our flesh. It it wants to be gratified. And Paul tells me in verse 14, don't leave any provision for it. Don't. He tells me I belong to the day, and he tells me that day is coming. 
in, in one of my little black books, I, I have this phrase that says, never let out of your mind thoughts of the crucified Christ. I think I'm going to add to it and the fact that he's going to return. And Christian, if you look at that list and, and, and maybe you see some stuff that you've done on it, do you know this song, We Get Knocked Down? But we get up again. Isn't that part of living in the light? It would be a terrible thing to get down and stay down. Jesus Christ has won such a massive victory for us that we can get back up again. To be forgiven by God is part of living in the light. Only Christianity says that. Jesus won that right for you. Verse 14, rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature or, your, or the flesh. In Greek it reads, clothe yourself with Christ, not with flesh gratifying. Okay, so you can put on Jesus or you can put on clothes. It sound creepy, right? Flesh gratifying clothes. Some of you may know this. Augustine, the, the great mind of Christian theology, fourth century, he was converted by reading these verses. There, there was the voice of a child. Remember, take up and read. And he read verses 13 and he read verses 14. Remember, Augustine was a party animal before Jesus Christ got a hold of him. And look what Jesus did with him. He is one of the great minds of the Christian church. And so when you read this and we sang this, it should remind us that our daily life is simply a repetition of our conversion. Isn't that the truth? Our daily life is simply a, a repetition of our conversion. And the good that we do and the bad that we do, all the conversion, it's just over again. That's why it feels so new and fresh. Think about it. That's why a Christian life, I could say it like this, can feel so new and can feel so fresh because it's like the repetition of our conversion all over again. And if you don't want verse 14, if you don't want to do what verse 14 is saying, and then Paul would say, well, then I guess you don't want to be what you already are. If you don't want to do verse 13 and verse 14, you don't want to be Christian what you already are. And the beautiful thing is we get to live in the light of the return of Jesus Christ. Okay, one application and we're done. Do, 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 not, do not let the world's great concerns be the only compass of your concern. Don't let it be your highest hope. Because Paul says the resurrection of Jesus Christ shows you that there's so much going on that you have yet to understand. There are so much more joys to experience. And, and there's so much joys to be found, not only here, but joys that are coming. And you see, on the cross is where we see the light of God's love. And on the cross, we see the darkness of God's wrath. But in the resurrection, all we see is what? All we see is brilliant light. The saving plan would shine on our hearts, if you would, and the echo of his life should echo out of our lives. And so we live this way in light of the return without a hint of regret. Because Paul says that our lives are lived best in view of the return of Jesus Christ. Your friend is coming back. 
Your king is coming back. Your savior is coming back. When, when I was a kid, and I had to be careful because my dad watches our services online. But there was a season in our life when my parents were gone a lot out of town. And this was the normal pattern, okay? The normal pattern is we would say, goodbye, mom and dad, we love you, and they would go. And you got kids in the house with older brothers watching you. Got a little loose. Now, Fran's own loose, so, you know, back off a little bit, you know. <laughs> but, but every day, it got closer to the return. The house got cleaner. Kids got better. They came home. Shiny house. Shiny kids. <laughs> Let's pray. I'm going to read from the Bible. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but live for him who died for them and was raised again. Father, sometimes the brokenness of society and the brokenness of our bodies can discourage us and make us fear. And we would pray, Father, for Jesus' sake, that you would give us a better anticipation of the better world that is real and that has already begun and is coming. A world whose builder and maker is you, the living God. Help us to remember that your love for us is unchanging and unending, even though that we sadly confess that ours can be so weak and and flickering and just laced with ambition and deep desires that are rooted in our flesh, and we are awfully sorry about that. And so we thank you that Jesus Christ, the only time he ever knew true darkness was when he made his way to the cross and on the cross, and all that darkness was really ours. And he swallowed it all up in his body as he died for sin, for our sins. So we see in the bread and in the juice really a love story. We proclaim his death until he returns. And we thank you, Jesus, that you're building your church, that you're protecting your people, and that your name and your praise and your glory will continue on until Christ returns or calls us home. And so we pray that you would help us to live quite simply in light of that return with a better joy and more conviction than we ever had before. That you would blow away our unbelief and replace it with a deep love for you and your truth and the world in which you died for. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening this week. 
If you were helped or encouraged by the sermon, please share it with others. For additional information, visit us online at westquestchapel.com. There you'll find other resources to connect you to Christ in His Church. Also, we invite you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or our YouTube channel. We hope you join us again next week as we grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.